Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Uh, good morning. I'd like to uh, to welcome everyone to the WCAPS podcast for uh, for March. And I look forward to a very good interview today. Uh, as you know, we are speaking to some of our, our excellent uh, women of color in the fields of peace and security and conflict transformation. And it's an opportunity to speak to women who are in all stages, uh, different stages of their career. And it's really, I believe, an opportunity for our listeners to just get exposure to some of the great work and some of the great women who are out there working in these fields. So I welcome you to another podcast, and I, I, I know this is going to be very interesting to all of you. So first of all, I'd like to have um, our guest introduce herself. Uh, I think you will really enjoy this uh, podcast. So Lovely, do you want to introduce yourself, please, to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Lovely Umayam. I am at the Stimson Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and I manage the nuclear security portfolio at the Stimson Center, and I'm happy to be part of this conversation today. Thanks for having me. Thank you, lovely, and I guess I should introduce myself. I'm uh, Bonnie Jenkins. I um, am the uh, president and founder of WCAP. So, Lovely, could you just tell us how you got your name? I love your name. <laughs> I love your name, Lovely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's actually... Uh, a funny story in the family. Um, so I, I grew up in the Philippines. Uh, Manila is my first home. Uh, and I am the second child um, out of five. And uh, when I was still um, in my mother's stomach, uh, my sister, uh, my older sister, the only child at that time was learning English. And as the story goes, uh, she was uh, very enamored by the word lovely and insisted that that should be my name. And I think at that point, my parents already had uh, a, a different name, a more normal name for me. But she threw a tantrum uh, and got her way because she was uh, the the only child, uh, the brat <laughs> child, if I could say. Uh, and so she named me. And um, I'm, I'm actually very, very... Uh, happy with it now. I think I've come to terms with it. Uh, I think that she's made a really good choice. It's made me, uh, you know, try to live up to the name. At first, I thought that there was a lot of pressure, and also, you know, being in a such a formal space and having the name "lovely" can be intimidating. You know, I don't know how people would respond to it, but it actually has showed uh, a lot of uh, compassion. Uh, a lot of people really love the name and are just like taken by it and just, you know, it puts a smile on their face. And so that's been a part of my life since then because of my sister. So that's, that's the story. <laughs> that's a wonderful story. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for telling it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. So could you tell us a little bit about your, your background, your educational background? Sure. So uh, I uh, was, again, uh, from Manila, Philippines. That's where I grew up. Uh, and then I immigrated to Los Angeles, California. Um, and to be honest, I really thought that I was just going to stay in Los Angeles uh, because we're first generation immigrants. 
and it was really the only world I knew and what felt comfortable. Uh, but I think over time, I realized that one of my passions or two of my passions were creative writing, um, as well as I was in interested in, in uh, foreign policy. And so with that, I ended up finding a liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon, Reed College, that seemed to have uh, a really good um, uh, department in, in both those spaces. And so I ended up at Reed College for my undergrad. And to be honest, I, I really focused on the creative writing piece of it first. I, I thought that I was going to be a novelist or a spoken word poet. And again, I think that came from my uh, upbringing in Los Angeles, where a lot of my community members were activists in Filipino town, and they really used the arts, particularly spoken word poetry, to, to channel sort of their, their views in, about the world um, and how to protect and uplift the community. So that's what I really wanted to do. But I think over time, while I was at Reed, um, I realized that my art, my, my writing is really more of a personal exercise. And to be quite honest, Reed is also a, a very privileged white space. And so I didn't, I wasn't able to, to really uh, explore that part of me um, uh, fully at that time. And so I decided that, you know, instead of creative writing, I was going to pursue something else. And again, as I mentioned, the, the other passion or interest at that time was foreign policy. And I think that really came from um, my immigration experience, um, understanding that there are many cultures out there that inform people's lives, uh, policies, um, and worldviews. Uh, and so I, I decided to venture in that. And from there, I ended up befriending an amazing professor who uh, specialized on nuclear policy. And he was the one who really encouraged me to, to look into that um, and as an issue area. And so I just kind of followed that beat. Uh, I, uh, as part of my education, I ended up uh, at the Monterey Institute, uh, now the Middlebury Institute um, of International Studies, where I continued my education in, in nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, I also studied abroad in, in Beijing, China, uh, just because I was interested in Chinese nuclear policy. And uh, that's essentially my educational background. Afterwards, I just ended up working in D.C. That's great. Thanks for, thanks for going through that with us. It's interesting yeah. to hear about um, how people get involved in the area of um, nuclear uh, weapons or weapons of mass destruction. Um, uh, and so thanks for letting us know about that. I also got involved in it myself uh, when I was already in the federal government as a fellow and um, being around individuals who were working on it. So it's, 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 it's instrumental having people who can uh, help direct you in, the, in, the, in this field. Yeah. And if I may just add to that, I, I always like to say, and I, uh, you know, I, a lot of people like challenge me to really own you know, non-pro as my, or nuclear non-proliferation as my destiny. But I have to be honest that I stumbled into it. Um, and I wouldn't be here without the influence of my mentors, um, encouragement from other folks that, that this is uh, an interesting issue. And part of it is, again, like, I, I had no personal connection to this 
issue growing up because I've, I've, I never, I wasn't there during the cold war when everyone was worrying about the bomb. Um, at the point that I was, uh, in Los Angeles, that was like the last thing in people's minds, uh, as I was growing up. And, uh, even at Reed, uh, a lot of the, the focus was on counterterrorism. And, and so it, it was a winding road for me in terms of, of finding this issue area and sticking to it. Uh, and I think that that was in due part of, of people showing me the different dimensions of nuclear policy, that it's not just about policy, it's also the history, it's also the culture. Um, and so, yeah, I just have to, to, to give my, my kudos to those who who uh, encouraged me to look at this really important issue. That's great. And I, I, I think we can definitely talk some more about that. I will have to do <laughs> another one just on, on that issue itself. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what you're, you, you mentioned you, you just, um, you're at Stimson Center. Could you say a little bit more about what you're doing there? Sure. So uh, part, as I mentioned earlier, my, my portfolio is uh, nuclear security. And so I'm particularly uh, focusing on how to protect nuclear materials in a wide variety of, of facilities so that they don't get uh, into the wrong hands in terms of um, non-state actors uh, uh, exploiting that uh, for, for nefarious uses. And what I really like about my job is that you know, the Simpson Center really encourages me to look at this problem differently. Um, I, I like to describe my job as an act of translation. Um, you know, how do I get other stakeholders that are involved in the nuclear sector, may it be industry, um, may it be uh, developing countries that may be interested in, in uh, the research and the science of it, but don't necessarily have, you know, they don't have grand plans for for nuclear use, um, you know, to, to get them to understand that nuclear security is an important aspect of, of, of being responsible custodians of, of the atom. Uh, you know, I think when people talk about nuclear security, it goes straight to uh, preventing terrorists from, uh, again, getting a hold of these materials. Um, which is true, but I think that we have to recognize that in many places and in other other stakeholders out there don't necessarily see it as that. And so part of my job is to develop programmings to understand how these stakeholders view nuclear security um, and you know humbly listen to them uh, and not necessarily impose this dominant narrative and and, and try to show them that, you know, nuclear security is an integral part of economic development. Um, nuclear security is an integral component of, of uh, business uh, as a, an operating facility with nuclear materials in it. So, so that's essentially what I do. Um, the other aspect of my work at Stimson uh, is engaging the public on nuclear issues writ large. Um, I, I was just talking to to a friend about, again, my trajectory as a nuclear expert. Uh, and one of the more frustrating um, uh, issues or, or, or challenges that I've, I've 
that has come up in my five years, not only in academia, but also uh, in the NGO space and also in government, um, that we have yet, I I feel very ill-equipped as an expert to talk about nuclear issues with my family and friends. You know, it's nuclear uh, non-proliferation, disarmament, all of that, arms control, they're by, it seems like they're by design just inaccessible uh, to uh, ordinary folks who should care, right? Because uh, we spend a lot of money uh, in these uh, weapon systems. Uh, we threaten um, other countries. <laughs> uh, other countries threaten us. Uh, and so I think it's it's a big deal, and and we've yet to come up with language uh, that would make people understand how this impacts their everyday lives. And so I try to do that uh, through a side project uh, that I'm developing, which is Bomb Shelto. Uh, it looks at an intersection of arts, community organizing, and nuclear issues. Uh, so those are the two um, uh, projects that that I'm working on at the Simpson Center. Great. Thank. That sounds. That sounds uh, really interesting. One of the things that um, we're doing in, in WCAPS in terms of interesting people in some of these issues is we have a peace, security, and art series um, cool. that we're developing. And there's a you know there's a page on the website that looks at peace, security, and art. So it's just developing. Um, but we are going to be looking at that as well in terms of bringing you know, more perspectives into the field of peace and security um, to widen the people and the dialogue. Um, so that, that's something um, definitely worth discussing some more in the future. Um, so let's, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about a little bit more about, I mean, we, we, some degree shifting gears because you are talking about your experiences, but um, what advances, and, and I know you've only been in, in this field, you said about five years, and I guess, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've, been working in it for, I don't want to say how long to date myself. <laughs> it's definitely been more than five um, in, the, in the area of weapons of mass destruction, non-proliferation, disarmament, um, uh, preventing uh, terrorism. But from your perspective, uh, what would you say have been some of the advances of women um, in, in the field? And, and what are some of the challenges you face as a woman, and particularly as a woman of color, um, in the area of nuclear um, security? Sure. So in terms of advances, I think, you know, we've come a long way in that I actually see women in the workplace. Uh, When I was in government, you know, my seniors were all women, very strong women. Um, And now that I'm at Stimson, uh, a lot of the senior experts, uh, my colleagues, are women. I believe the statistic is, you know, 70% of, of the Simpson Center is uh, uh, female experts. And so the numbers and just sort of seeing uh, people like me, uh, you know, being experts, talking about uh, uh, their knowledge, uh, not only here at work, but also representation um, in in the media and also in articles. I think that we've come a long way. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, numbers are uh, the end-all be-all. I mean, I think that we have more to do, actually. There's still a lot of manuals. Uh, there's, you know, uh, uh, still a lot of, of articles out there uh, that don't cite women. Um, so it's 
you know, I, I go back and forth in that I, I can't deny the fact that when I go to work, I see strong women around me and that encourages me, that lights a fire in me. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate in that I, I found places where I could find that. I, I can't quite say that that's uh, the, the narrative across the board, right? Um, and also there is uh, the issue of even if I see women around me, um, am I able to, as a, women, uh, as, a, as a woman, and also more specifically a woman of color, can come to these spaces to assert myself and, and really share my genuine voice? Um, I think that there's definitely imposter syndrome. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to admit that, that that's something I have to overcome. Uh, and even though no one's being uh, sexist or, or, or uh, saying anything demeaning, because I know that uh, at the end of the day, uh, women in the field is... Uh, sort of a new frontier uh, that I, I still have to hold my own and that there are assumptions about me being made. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that that's like my colleagues or what have you. It's just the, uh, the, the environment itself um, has historically not allowed women to, to shine. So I, that's something that I internalize. And I think that sometimes uh, is, is presented in sort of anxiety and, and, and how people think about me, uh, you know, how much my expertise is worth and so forth. So I guess to simplify that point, I think that there's still challenges in terms of coming to work as my full self. You know, do I have to code switch? Do I have to, to look a certain way? Um, do I have to hide certain aspects of me? Um, so that I'm perceived as a professional in the field. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I, I go back and forth, you know, I, sometimes I feel like a hundred percent, I own this. I definitely have moments like that where I feel completely supportive or supported by my peers. Um, and, and I definitely feel myself shine, but there are other times when it's just not up to par, you know, and, and I can't quite pinpoint why I can't articulate it. Again, it's very internalized. So I think that that's the more challenging piece of it. Um, I'm always for uh, uh, increasing uh, the diversity in the workplace, seeing uh, gender balance, um, seeing women uh, represented um, and being heard. But I think that we also have to create an environment that would allow for women to feel like they can share themselves. Uh, so, so yeah, those I would say are the advantages and, and the challenges. So what do you, what do you think are some of the challenges, um, that organizations are facing in, in, in helping women of color to feel more, more comfortable, I guess, one way, one way of saying mm -hmm, that, because, mm -hmm. and I, and I obviously understand what you mean in terms of, you know, bringing, having to have that these other issues always in the back of your mind that others who are not part of the other have to think about. Um, mm -hmm. And it does, you know, it's something that you carry around and, and um, that's, that's a, a unique, that's different from um, others who are not, not in that particular role. 
Um, but what are some of the challenges do you see in terms of um, how that could be changed um, by some of the environments in which we work? Yeah, and I, I think that's like a really great and also challenging question because I would say that you know organizations in this day and age um, uh, have it hard because you know you may have like a very progressive uh, organization, but if the issue itself, foreign policy, you know, security, um, has been historically uh, 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 been more, uh, uh, or, or it has historically been um, uh, for a, a particular subset of, of the population where you don't see women, particularly women of color speaking up, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to, to overcome that. I, I mean, I think that, uh, of course, uh, trying to uh, up promote um, and uplift uh, women of color um, in, in institutions, making sure that uh, they uh, are given opportunities to, to talk about that their expertise, I think, is, is the number one uh, thing that they could do. But again, like, I, I think the challenge is not, it may not necessarily be an institution itself. Um, but it's also the subject matter, right, where there's already some baked assumptions as to who gets to talk on this particular issue, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that it's it complicated by the fact that historically we don't see women talking about nuclear nonproliferation and so uh, you know a lot of our responses to 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 women trying to speak up it, it, it could be a very unconscious like oh we'll just give it to um, uh, a male expert instead um, and I think that because we are you know this is 2018 and I think that um, more institutions are are uh, trying to be aware of of how to to be more inclusive, not necessarily just diverse, but inclusive. I think that's like a really good first step uh, in trying to make sure that uh, that you know they're not just hiring more women of color, but actually providing them the opportunities to thrive in their positions and and uh, actively thinking about upward mobility in a particular institution, knowing that there's hard data out there, talking about um, you know women, uh, particularly women of color, not being afforded the same promotions. I think that those are good first steps. But, you know, it, it's going to be a challenge because of the field that we're in, um, specifically. I hope that that makes sense. It's, again, it's, it's one of those, I think, situations that's very difficult to articulate because I want to recognize um, that there are a lot of well-meaning institutions out there who are trying to make a change. But when it's paired with issue areas that uh, historically leave out women voices, women of color voices, you know, that's another added layer of complexity. And it's very difficult to parse out what to do there. um, Because a lot of that is, again, internalized and and unconscious. Great. That's a great answer. Uh, Thanks for that. And I I totally agree that it's it's very hard to articulate it. um, But 
you know, and, and sometimes in my view, it's, it's very, I see that some organizations are well-meaning and mm-hmm. want to, at least they want to make the change and recognize the change and may, need to be made. But uh, sometimes they, they often end up doing what's comfortable and doing what's mm-hmm. easy. Um, yeah. And that sometimes goes into going back to what they, what the situation that we're trying to change. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's, it's a difficult thing, but we need to keep working on that. Um, another thing I w- want your view on is, is, is we're talking about the, the role of uh, women of color and some of the challenges. Um, turning the question around, I mean, how does having women of color in these foreign policy debates and discussions on peace and security and conflict, how in that view, how in your view does that transform uh, and uh, U.S. foreign policy, and how does it change the potential impact? of U.S. foreign policy? That's uh, a great question, and I can speak for experience as a a Filipino-American. You know, when I travel uh, and engage different uh, people um, around the world, I think that um, there's something to be said about sharing um, a cultural connection, you know, seeing uh, diaspora, um, understanding what it means to to live in a developing country um, uh, uh, for uh, it, you know when, when it comes to like my my experience, I think a lot of those things actually inform the way I understand the world um, and it strengthens I would argue my expertise because i 'm not just reading it from a book i 'm not just uh, uh, you know acquiring knowledge from lectures. I, I think that it's undeniable that there are certain times when lived experience, my history, uh, helps inform who I am and the way I, I uh, look at the world. Um, and, and inevitably, uh, the policy prescriptions that I, I put out there, you know, going back to, to my work of, of translating nuclear issues so that various stakeholders can can have a better understanding of it. I mean, that's one of the things that I love to do is uh, going to, to other countries that may not necessarily have a lot of nuclear material um, and, and trying to understand from a development, you know, from a security standpoint, what are they more uh, worried about? Is it, uh, you know, w- what are some of the regional challenges? Um, you know, I, again, I, I'm not, I don't like the idea of coming in and imposing um, you know, the dominant narrative. I, I like to, you know, be able to, to talk to people and understand where they're coming from. Um, and I think that, uh, obviously, uh, that's part of my, my education, but I, I cannot uh, lie and say that, you know, being brought up in the Philippines and Los Angeles, where I'm uh, uh, exposed to different communities and they're all coming from different backgrounds and they all have different perspectives that didn't doesn't inform like the way that I approach people um and 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 talk to them about nuclear issues and and having that sense of humility to listen um and and see from from their point of view and so I think that that's um how I think women of color can transform U.S. policy, uh, that, you know, just, you know, 
we have a, a unique talent to bring in terms of our lived experiences, the way that we see the world, um, the way that our families, our communities has been historically treated. I think that's baked into who we are and how uh, we, we analyze the world. And I think that the United States can, can uh, really benefit from that, especially now that we're becoming a more globalized um, uh, place. Uh, that we all depend on different cultures. Um, uh, the, you know, it's not just the United States, it's becoming a melting pot, it's really the rest of the world. Uh, and so I think that there's definitely strength in, in engaging women of color in, uh, in foreign policy because of that. Great, thank you. Um, and so what would, what would your advice be to young women of color who are interested in entering the fields of either what we call hard security, which is you know, nuclear nonproliferation, weapons of mass destruction, or other areas of global security. Um, what would your advice be to them in, if, if they approached you and said, I'm really interested in this field, how do I get involved and what should I be focusing on in my, you know, mm -hmm. in my career early on to succeed in those, in those fields? Um, I, I think uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, there's definitely persistence. You know, I think uh, it's already a very difficult, arcane, niche field to begin with. I, I'm speaking specifically of WMD. Um, but if that's definitely uh, a passion, there is a uh, real interest in that. I think it's, it's really about being persistent and trying to identify champions. Um, in that field and, and being courageous enough uh, to shoot out that email to uh, a, an expert in DC that you've been following and saying, hey, I really like your, uh, your analysis. Um, you know, can we have an informational interview so that I can get a better sense of what your day-to-day -day is? I mean, I did that and, and I had to be pushed to do that. Uh, I remember you know, being very embarrassed and anxious and trying to, to do that when I was uh, still in, in undergrad. And the recurring thing in my head was, who am I to call these people? They're so much more uh, 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 knowledgeable and glamorous than me. I'll never, and, and I think, again, that's like the imposter syndrome that's already talking. And I think that, you know, as women of color, that's, you know, I, I think that that's, we, we struggle with that issue. And, and so I think that just uh, reminding yourself that uh, you could, you know, that there is value in trying to go beyond that and just try and see what happens. Um, and, and I understand that it could be very difficult to just internalize that on your own. And so the other advice I would have is to surround yourselves with friends that would hold you accountable. Because <laughs> uh, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I wouldn't be here without people uh, being, you know, advocates for myself. Because there were definitely moments where I couldn't be an advocate for my own self because I was having my own internal struggles. Um, and so, you know, finding your friends or your family members that would hold you accountable, um, I think is, is important. Uh, in terms of, of the subject matter itself, 
um, you know, one of the things that I, I forgot to mention is why did I end up latching on to WMD issues, especially nuclear? Uh, part of the reason is because I found my own thread that I, I, I loved. You know, um, a lot of the conversations about nuclear weapons has been about the weapon systems, nuclear deterrence, and a lot of the strategic thinking. What got me, I, I was able to hone very early on why I was interested in this topic. And it was because I was enamored, I was fascinated by the duality of the atom, that you could use it for peaceful uses, but humanity decided that we're also going to make a bomb out of it. And that a lot of the in, you know, interactions in the international community has been you know, that convergence of those two. How can we continue to use uh, nuclear materials and technology for peaceful uses, for power, for research, you know, to, to um, help with water security, all of these amazing things that the world needs. Um, and that's coming to a head with, you know, what we see in the news, which is, you know, countries wanting to, to modernize nuclear weapons right, and threatening each other with it. And, and so uh, I found that fascinating. And there's a lot of history. Um, and, and going back to my point about, you know, different perspectives um, that, that countries have, that stakeholders have when it comes to the word nuclear, that's fascinating to me. And so I think being able to interpret the, the issue era, area uh, or the, the subject in your own way and always just having that in you, um, oh, you know, that was like a big driving force for me to continue pestering people and seeing what opportunities are out there for, for me to get into this field. Uh, because I found, you know, I was able to clearly articulate to myself why I'm passionate about this. And I think that, um, you know, if, if you have that um, explanation for yourself, um, if you can clearly say why this is absolutely um, fascinating to you, that will help you get a long way in, in trying to be persistent in, in trying to, to get a career to, to delve deeper and actually do this for a living. I hope that helped in terms of tips. Yes, I think it does. And, and you mentioned uh, several times the importance of having a support system, which I, mm -hmm. you know, it really is, it helps you keep you go, helps keep you going if you know there are people out there who can continue to support you, particularly when things are difficult and challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and because, and also, you know, something I, I, I always tell young people is, you know, the importance of, you know, finding your passion. And when you are passionate about something that helps you also maintain a desire to keep going when things are challenging because you still want to do something because you're really passionate about it. And that can also see you through um, because you want to do it. And it's something that you are dedicated to. So I think that's very important. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, having, um, you know, role models, and I, I, that's something that's in, you, when we talked about support system, but also I think important having role models. And um, who have been some of your role models? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, a lot of my role models are very personal. Like I don't necessarily have role models <laughs> in, in the field per se, even in, um, in, in the security space. Um, I think I draw a lot of my inspiration and energy 
from people who are not familiar with with this issue. Um, so my my role models have been my uh, grandmother. Uh, she she passed away last year, um, but she's been such uh, a central force in in the family. Um, and she was in the in in Manila. Uh, grew up in the Philippines. Um, uh, very little means, um, and and that's been the recurring narrative uh, for my family. Is that you know we persist uh despite the the struggles and she's definitely one of the the pioneers in the family when it comes to that of course my my mother is a a really big role model for me um given that she she left all of her opportunities in the philippines to to be uh here in the united states um and uh you know just given her all so that her children can thrive. Um, and, and the reason I, I state this and why I think it's really relevant to my career is, is that, you know, as I mentioned before, it can be hard as a woman to show up every day, especially as a woman of color to show up every day when, you know, you aren't, you don't see women at the table when I am feeling that imposter syndrome. Um, and so I just have to look back at the people in my life that has, you know, had it harder, um, uh, that has, has really seen some, uh, you know, very painful struggles and persevered. And so I think that having them as, as role models um, have deeply informed as to, you know, my resilience <laughs> in this field. Um, uh, and the other role model, um, for me is my creative writing mentor. Uh, she, I, I met her when I was in middle school. At that time, I was actually still, you know, I, I had to uh, learn a lot of my English here in the United States. And I was feeling very um, insecure about, um, you know, my, my English skills. And she was the one who really showed me the way in terms of learning English through creative writing. Um, and and the arts, uh, and that's also something that I bring into my work. You know that when I struggle um, understanding a certain topic, are there other creative ways for me to to learn about it? Um, I, I I like to infuse creativity in my day to day because I've realized early on that that's how I learn. Um, is when I look at the arts. You know that's another you know vantage point that um, has you know, led me um, to to this field because nuclear is just teeming with with uh, uh, epic, amazing, beautiful, heartbreaking images. And there are many artists around the world who really uh, take into that and interpret it in various ways in their um, artistic forms. Um, and and so I, I really try to bring in creativity in my work. Uh, especially in a field that seems <laughs> lacking of it, uh, and I really use that as as one of my strengths. So I would I would just cap it at that. Those are my three role models. I mean, I don't necessarily have um, someone in the field. Um, I'm open to it though, um, and and you know I uh, I'm looking forward to to having you know a young role model in the field that's like just trailblazing. You know, and, and so I am sure that my list will just grow um, some more uh, uh, as I, I, I stick around. 
Great, thanks. Just very, very quickly, you've mentioned the imposter syndrome a couple of times. Just could you yeah. share those for our folks who are listening so they know what you're referencing? Sure. So um, the imposter syndrome, I would uh, summarize as that feeling when, uh, you know, you think that you know, but insecurities just say, oh, you actually don't know what you're doing or you don't know what you're talking about. Even though you, you know, in my case, I've, I've been studying it, uh, working on it for five years. I've prepared, you know, talking points. I've, you know, it's just that internal anxiety that everyone will find out that you're not good enough, <laughs> which is completely irrational. Um, but you know, uh, a lot of my uh, female colleagues, friends go through that all the time. Um, and I think part of it, and this is something that a, um, a, a mentor of mine recently mentioned, is that when women speak up and others disagree, you know, historically they have been punished for it, maybe through um, threats online or just a, you know, a very public rebuke, interrupting, all of those things. So when we see that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, something that has happened to me, but just seeing that pattern of how women are treated when they speak up, historically, also now, you know, on TV, on Twitter, and so forth, we all sort of, you know, internalize that. And so the imposter syndrome is fed by that, knowing that if I mess up, if I say something that people don't agree with that that could uh, uh, be a backlash on me so who am I to talk about these things in the first place so so that's how I would encapsulate um, imposter syndrome um, and it's actively something I'm, I'm trying to to get rid of it's it's a very difficult process for me I think it's a difficult process for a lot of uh, women women of color especially. Uh, but again, it's that persistence and that resilience of, of trying to get beyond that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm doing a fair job at, uh, at uh, fighting my own battles with imposter syndrome. Great. Thank you. So in your view, how can WCAPS uh, advance women of color's voice on issues of international peace and security and conflict? I, I love that question because <laughs> I think it's just by existing, you know, I, I, going back to, to just knowing that, you know, women of color are, are out there talking about their expertise. Um, uh, it, every time I see that, it just gives me power and it's like, oh, I can do that too. You know, I, it's undeniable the, 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 the power that can come from representation. Um, and, and that's why there's so many people out there who make a fuss about seeing, you know, more women, uh, people of color in the Oscars, you know, and, and Hollywood and, and so forth, because that holds a lot of, of, of political, emotional currency, right? And so I think that that's what WCAPs uh, afford us in this community, you know, being able to to showcase women of color who are making it, trying to make it, and I'm very honored to be part of that class of of, of people, and also knowing that there is a a, a hub uh, of uh, a resource that 
is willing to talk about these things, to be vulnerable, to talk about imposter syndrome, to talk about how institutions uh, can change for the better and, and how it's challenging. You know, so I think that WCAPS is already uh, doing a lion's share of the work. And I so thank you for that, Bonnie. Um, and, and all I could say is, is uh, you know, to, to continue putting out our voices out there and also providing this outlet to be just ourselves. I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Earlier, I talked about how that's like one of the hardest things as women of color is that, you know, we may be recognized for our expertise, but there's at least speaking for myself, there are moments where I feel like I have to hide a part of myself because, you know, I, I, I don't see um, others like me who, who can be their entire selves. So, so I think WCAPS can, can provide that brave space for us to just, you know, uh, talk as we would, um, you know, and, and not code switch, um, if you will. Uh, and, and yeah, I think that not only through web resources, you know, I, I would love to, to actually meet uh, women of color in the field, um, you know, befriend them and, and, and develop that physical network. And I think WCAPS will be instrumental in that as well. Thank you for that. I mean, and we definitely are going to be uh, continuing to do a lot of the things that you have mentioned. And, and as you said, just being a place for not only people to um, develop networks and 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 those type of things, but just to see other women of color who are out there doing yeah. the work and um, women who are, are what I call our pioneers, mm -hmm. but also those in the mid career who are working in these areas, and also our young our yeah. young women who are who are just entering the yeah. field or you know and moving up to. Uh, mid-career levels as well so you know we want to be a, a place where people can you know women of color can can see other women doing these things in addition to things like activities and networking and things yeah. like that so we, we do and do if I could add please mm -hmm. oh I'm sorry um no. oh and just you you mentioned something that that uh, uh, just uh, reminded me of, of my point earlier that you know when I was starting off and trying to to cast a wide net on the internet in terms of like who to talk to, you know, uh, for informational interviews and, and so forth. I think WCAPS could be a really fantastic resource for, you know, college students who are still, you know, uh, trying to break into the field. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's a, an accessible resource. Um, and I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, this field can feel very inaccessible, that there's only a certain kind of person who can actually do these types of things. Uh, and, and that feeds into the imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to even try to, to reach out to so-and-so or, or try to get an internship uh, in this organization or that organization? Um, and I think that WCAPS can be that conduit, you know, like show the way in terms of actually, here's a, a, a resource. Um, for you to start because there are women who look just like you um, who are doing amazing things in all of these different organizations um, and institutions. So I just wanted to, to point that out. Thanks for that. And uh, I was, I think that's an excellent ending. <laughs> ask you if you had any, any final words, but I think that's great. But if you yes. have any, 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 any final words for, for the, uh, for folks listening, um, 
to to this podcast uh, on on the issue of women of color in peace and security security and advancing uh, our roles in it and our voice in it um, advancing young people uh, to be in this in these fields any last minute words before we before we sign off um, I think I will just say that you know um, to my fellow women of color interested in uh, you know changing this field, you know, I hear you, I see you and keep rocking it. I think that's it. That sounds great. So thank you lovely, <laughs> for doing this. I really appreciate uh, your taking, a, you know, an hour of your, about an hour of your time to do this. I know that you're uh, working uh, hard over there at Stinson, so we appreciate <laughs> that. Um, and uh, look forward to uh, continuing to work with you. And uh, I, I want to tell the audience to continue to, to uh, check our website where we'll be having these, these types of really good podcasts and others um, in the future. And we're going to be also starting to do some webinars in April as well. So we definitely want to stay uh, involved with, uh, with all of you who are in the field or want to be in the field of peace and security and to continue to strengthen the voices of women of color. So this is uh, Bonnie Jenkins uh, signing off and I'm looking forward to continue to work with all of you in the future. Thanks, lovely. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.